This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Your mind and uh, the impact it has on life. And when, I, when I'm coaching people in my um, practice, I the mind really is one of the first big barriers that has to has to be evaluated at least in order to create some movement in order to create a change um it's not just trying to teach them skills i can teach couples to talk i can get them communicating i can get them to maybe hold off before they just blow up and listen to somebody but there are certain thoughts that are constantly stewing in our lives or in our minds and those thoughts may um deeply impact what you do, what you feel. So my basic belief as a coach is that our thinking, whether it's conscious or subconscious thoughts, whether you're actually intentionally thinking about the thought or whether it's just some, you know, some undercurrent belief that you have, it's going to generate feeling. Thoughts tend to generate feelings. Feelings tend to generate doing what you do. And doing tends to generate what you're becoming. And if what you're becoming doesn't jive with what you want to become, then you're going to be out of integrity, which will generate feeling, right, and thoughts. So the pattern goes, thinking, feeling, doing, becoming over and over and over. So here's some thoughts that you want to make sure you you don't have running through your operating system. And, and just start questioning it, like, what made me go off right here? Why did I start to act this way? That's what I was doing, yelling, screaming, whatever, um, just pulling away, ignoring my family or my spouse. Why was I doing that? Go back to the feeling behind it. There was something I was feeling. By the way, motivation for those that want to understand motivation. Uh, motivation is the feeling that generates the doing, right? Um, so that's there's power in understanding the uh, – the feeling and the doing. There's also power, also maybe more power in understanding the thinking behind the feeling. Um, Here's an example. Do you tend to have a thought that you don't have a choice in life? You don't have a choice. I've got to do it. Don't even have a choice. I mean, I don't even want to do it, but I've got to go do this job or I've got to go, you know, take my kids to here and this place and that place. So if that is the thought that's underlying it um, and the belief, it's going to generate a feeling. And the feeling is probably obligated, forced. It's going to be an uglier feeling if you don't have a choice to do something, which will then generate how you go do it. Think of how you do something you didn't want to do. So a kid that throws a tantrum up to an adult that you know ruins a trip that they didn't even want to go on, um, it, it's going to be acted out. So if you do you have a thought process that you're trapped, you don't want to do what you're doing. You don't want to be in the life you want to be you're in. You don't want to be in the marriage you, you're in. Another thought that a lot of people have is that life is easy or life should be easy. And then they're amazed every time it's not easy. So if that's the way that you if you have a belief that life should be easy and yours isn't, then you then you obviously think I got to change my life. I got to change it, and you might feel misery even though you got a pretty good life. It's just normal. It's hard. Another belief is um, that uh, 
the way it is now is the way it's always going to be, right? So if it's bad now, some people believe it's just, it's just that's your life. It's always going to be bad. Or do you believe, you know what? No, life's going to change. Just give it a couple of years. Give it a month. Give it a two. Give it a week. It's going to get better. Do you also believe that uh, everyone else has it better than you do? Right? There's people that believe everyone else just has it better than you do. Um, some people have a belief system that it's just too late, a value system, maybe something in their mind like it's too late. You know, it's too late to change my job. It's too late to become something that I want to become. Some call it just bad luck. You know, I just got bad luck. Bad luck. Everything I touch is just goes bad. Um, the certain, some, some think of this optimist. You know, you know what? The situation, it's, it's going to get better. Some have that automatic, you know, reply. Some, no, 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 it's just going to be worse. But whatever your view is, it's yours. And if you, you're going to keep suffering the feelings that come from that thinking. And you're going to keep suffering the doing or the lack of doing that come from those feelings and those thoughts. So when I coach somebody, I always ask them to go back and try to evaluate the thought or the, the thought, uh, the feeling, kind of the mood that drives you to keep doing what you're doing. And any time you spend looking at it is valuable. Trust me. Any time you spend recognizing the thought that's preceding a lot of these feelings you have, the better off you're going to have. You're going to actually find a way to turn this around. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We talk about beauty um, and we talk about self-esteem, right? So we want to we want to have this belief in ourself, but uh, we got to be really clear what self we're talking about. Because when you think of you, you are not just you. You are made up of a body. You're made up of a mind. You're made up of a spirit. You are made up of a bunch of different thoughts and paradigms and beliefs about who you are. So be really careful. Um, as you try to grow self-esteem, you, you got to focus somewhere. And my concern is that many people spend the majority of their time trying to build self-esteem, probably working on only one of the three components of self-esteem, which is the body. So your body, a great tool, right? A great source. Brings you the chemistry, you know, it allows you to feel the pleasure and the pain of the world. You can rip, you can get those ripped abs like I've got, you know, buns of steel, muscles galore, rippling. Okay, don't be rude. And you you can have all of that going for you. You can be stronger than everyone else. You can be faster. You can uh, financially go make all the money you want to take care of your body and your body's needs. You can drive the nice car, something to put your body into. You can buy the best clothes. And interestingly, it won't necessarily make you feel better. It will for a while. But eventually, if you want true self-esteem, you're going to have to go deeper than the body, right? So eventually, you're going to want to – you're going to jump into your mind. And the mind is where you, you, know, you want to start you know, having some power. You want to be more popular, do you want some of the things that are less tangible, not a car necessarily, but you want prestige, you want popularity, you want people to like you. And you'll realize that your car's great, but it doesn't mean people actually like you. They might just use you for your car. So as you move into your mind, you're going to you're going to you're going to like it. Your mind likes, you know, looking good, it likes being popular. 
It likes having, you know, maybe not even you're not even going to sit there and like sit in your money and just play in all your money. That's the tangible stuff. But you just like knowing that you have more than others. So that becomes a mind game for you now. Now your mind is being satisfied because you're getting ahead supposedly in life. The problem with your mind, though, is um, you're never going to be good enough because eventually you're going to have a neighbor move in that will have more money than you. So your mind alone isn't where you're going to find self-esteem either. It's not going to be in your mind that you – because your mind's constantly going to be comparing you. And you're either going to have to be better or just worse than everywhere else. And your mind's going to kind of bifurcate it and make it an either or. So the true source of essence is always going to be in the spiritual side. Essence is your ability to have less and be okay with it. It's your ability to be present. Essence is that good feeling you feel when you are doing something that is noble and good that you love to be about. It's holding your grandchild. It's holding your child. It's that silent night in the middle of the night when you're just rocking your baby back to sleep and you just feel peace. It's when you're serving. It's when you're out in nature. That's where your true sense of who you are comes from. It's usually in the quiet times we find ourselves. It's not in the loud, busy dance halls or bars that you're going to find your true identity. Super fun. But in the end, you got to be okay with yourself. You got to know what your purpose is. You've got to feel some connection to a higher power. Your true self, your true esteem is going to come from knowing that why you're here on this earth and what you're doing here and being connected to some bigger purpose. And I'd also say being connected to a higher power. And you can go determine what that higher power is. But if we're not connected to it, then what can you esteem? The highest power I've, or the highest esteem I have is knowing that I'm a child of some, of God, of something bigger than myself. That brings me more self-confidence than anything I could do or have or say. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We do. We watch these shows or these television news moments where we hear of a child in a car or lately it's even been animals. Um, I mean, it's always been animals, but now people are, these kids are dying, right? And apparently we are at a higher rate of deaths with children in cars this year than um, last year. We've already passed last year's totals of death of children in, in these in cars that were left in cars. So that's one of the reasons we wanted to focus on this topic. Also, I want you to notice that um, how quickly we are to judge and to be uh, so angry because of the innocence, right, of these these children. They didn't do anything. They didn't. They were innocent here. But One of the things to remember what uh, Dr. Diamond was teaching us, there's very universal issues at play here. And you have memory and you have battling kind of dueling purposes in your memory. One memory is there to get you habitually to just keep doing the things you do. And another is, you know, the the perspective memory to get you to, you know, don't forget this. But as for as mad as you are about somebody leaving um, – another parent leaving their child in the car and you can't explain that or understand it, how many times have you personally been driving down the road habitually in your habitual uh, memory and you don't even remember driving somewhere? You just got in the car and went to grandma's 
and put it on autopilot and just think about that lack of awareness, right? Think about what happens when you get in autopilot. Yeah, sure, you'll never forget your child in the car, but you will drive 75 kind of brainlessly and not and you know and be thinking of something else. So as quick as we are to all judge somebody that makes a mistake like that and that's a I'm not I don't want to diminish that. That's an enormous mistake. And it is a mistake we can't make, but people do. And they will statistically, you know, millions of parents they're going to make mistakes. Um but your need to then crucify this person, your need to then diminish them, to beat them up, and to get online and make comments like you're informed, like you would never make a mistake like that. I promise you, if we followed you long enough, you have. You do. All the time. If you forget your phone somewhere, if you forget to pick a child up from something, if you if you you're going to make a mistake. And that's the hard thing about being a human on this earth is we make mistakes and not all mistakes that we make are equal. Sometimes you make a mistake driving and you accidentally kill somebody and it ruins your life. And it's a mistake. It's a pure, simple mistake. So people make mistakes. Let's let's just recognize that you're part of that group, right? You're not part of the deity and God that doesn't make the mistake. You're part of the group that makes mistakes. So be careful how you judge one another, right? Hoping to help you see the good in the world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the Constitution of the United States was written over 200 years ago, and the nation in 1787 obviously looked vastly different than it does today, right? Our problems have changed. They've evolved. Uh, We're in a global world, a global economy. So that simple agrarian society uh, where the Constitution was founded, maybe some of its uh, tenets don't necessarily uh, play out or apply as we believed they may have. Uh, For example, perhaps our governmental structure itself, the way Congress is organized and the power between president and Congress, um, maybe it's it's not really suited to handle some of today's issues like health care and taxes as much as uh, it used to be. So the solution, according to our guest today, Dr. William Howell, a professor at the University of Chicago, uh, he has written a book, uh, um, called uh, titled Relic, How Our Constitution Undermines Effective Government and Why We Need a More Powerful Presidency. Perhaps the solution is, you know, working on the Constitution, changing it and uh, and giving more power to the president. Let's talk to Dr. William Howell. Dr. Howell, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me. This is a real treat. You bet. Honored to have you. Great uh, topic. I We see it, don't we? We According to your your premise of your book, we, we, we see the conflict going on between uh, the president and a, a gridlocked Congress. In your book, you're, you're saying basically that's because of the simple structure of the Constitution. 
Yeah, there's dysfunction all about, and there are lots of causes for the dysfunction that we observe in, 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 our, in our politics. Um, uh, the kind of dysfunction that we want to draw attention to is just the inability of our federal government in particular to solve problems, problems involving climate change, uh, incoherent tax code, rising debt, the lack of a comprehensive immigration uh, reform. There are just these waves of big, hard, complicated, long-term problems that the federal government can't get its handle on. And um, we want to draw attention to the, basic, the, the fundamental source of the problem, which has to do with the constitutional design of our government, which, as you, as you pointed out in the, in the lead-up, um, was fashioned in a very different age with very different expectations. This was a, a small agrarian country. Ninety-five percent of the people in it were farmers. Um, there were fewer than 4, 000, 4, excuse me, 4 million people, 700,000 of whom were slaves, and at a time when the federal government wasn't expected to do very much at all. And, and yet the basic architecture of our government is much the same 225 years later. Um, and we are hoping that people will think critically about issues of, of the design of our institutions and, and to recognize the need for institutional reform if we're going to get serious about solving problems. It's a, I, I think it's a great um, what do we, icebreaker, really. You, you've written the book uh, that, uh, that a lot of even critics say have, has opened up a, a wonderful opportunity for dialogue. And I think we, we, we couldn't really fully expect a, everything about a document written 200 years ago to relate and understand to today's day and age, could we? No, certainly not. And that was something that the founders themselves recognized. They recognized that they, they couldn't see all that, all that awaited. Um, and Jefferson, foremost among them, called upon future generations to not you know, be beholden to the dead, but rather to start afresh every 17, 18 years and write the Constitution anew. Now, that's not what we're calling for here. What we're calling for is adaptation and, um, and a constitutional amendment. We can talk about what that might look like. But, uh, but really, it's about taking ownership of our age and to recognize the, the problems that we face today as the founders faced in their day. It's just that their day was very different from ours. Yeah. Um, and they had very different values and, and different expectations of their government than we do. Um, and rather than trying to recover this point of origin, to sort of go back and to think, you know, what would the founders do? And to take that advice and simply run with it today, what we want is for us to do what they did, which is to think for ourselves and to think what kind of institutions do we need so we can actually get uh, some leverage on these big, big problems that we're having such a hard time attending to. Talk to us about how you see just how the Constitution itself has hindered. I mean, because it's been it was engineered in a way that uh, it, it may have hamstrung Congress or the president. Where do you see uh, maybe some potential changes in just the structure, the 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 overall you know uh, you know institutional engineering needs to be fixed. Sure. So, I mean, there are two big problems that we draw um, attention to. The first is just separation of powers. Um, the problems insofar as it, they, they hinder the ability of the government to, to solve 
and address the challenges that we face today. Separation of powers, right? Power is divided across the various branches of government to the federal level, and um, it's divided vertically through a system of federalism. And so nobody is effectively in charge, and it becomes very difficult to coordinate across the various branches of government to get stuff done. Okay, there's that. This, but the, the piece that we really focus on and that we want to actually do something about is the fact that Congress is the first branch of government. We don't have a system of co-equal branches of government. That's not what the Constitution created. It created a system wherein Congress, a uh, collective decision-making body, would be the first branch of government. It would be the locus of decision-making. And Congress is designed in a way that channels and promotes parochialism, um, short-term thinking, um, by virtue not uh, of the design of the institution, right? People are elected from districts and states. Right. Um, and so they see policy by reference to the needs and interests of organized interests within those districts and states. They don't tend to see what is good for the country as a whole, first and foremost. They think about what's good for the third district of Utah. Right? Mm -hmm. That's point number one. The point number two is that they think about regularly the short term. They have to run for re-election. And so when you talk about getting a handle on something like the debt, they aren't thinking 20 years out, what might we do to attend to the problems 20 years out? They're thinking about what impact any change that we make today is going to have on their constituents today. And then the third part um, uh, and the impediment for, for problem solving is that Congress, members of Congress, think about the pieces rather than the whole. They think about how any policy change is going to directly affect the parts of policy change that are directly going to affect their constituents, and they you know, work doggedly to attend to that part. They don't, they're, they're, they're constant, their energies aren't directed towards fashioning coherent, uh, systematic reform that, that, that has integrity as a whole. And, and when you have then the first branch of, branch of government channeling these pathologies, it becomes very difficult, difficult to affect meaningful change. Oh, man. Well, even, even as you've explained it, it's like, yeah, if all of a sudden all I care about is my election in two years and I have, you know, uh, I have corn growers in my in my district, then we're going to talk corn. And that's I, I mean, exactly right. But I, but I guess that's. It seems like that was part of the the goal of the founders, right? So that there that you would still be represented in your local area, but then, like you're saying, we don't end up necessarily looking at the betterment of the entire country. I think that that's right. There is a way in which, um, um, again, the, the founders created a government that one wasn't expected to do very much. They wanted to guard against the tyranny of the majorities. They wanted to build in lots of checks against the exercise of any kind of authority. And uh, they were primarily concerned about the representation of local interests. And that's the government that right. they created. And that's now, what we have, but we've outgrown and that's it. What, yeah. And that's what we live with 225 years later. So this isn't to say that local interests don't um, shouldn't be represented, right? We don't want to denigrate the importance of local interests. Um, but when local interests are the agenda setters, when they're the ones in control, again, it becomes very difficult to fashion systematic reform that makes sense for the country as a whole. There are reasons why the tax code is a complete disaster and is filled with loopholes and carve-outs and exceptions. 
um, it's because that's the handiwork of a collective decision-making body where each individual, each legislative entrepreneur is trying to carve out a piece for his or her district to organize interests that he or she is working on behalf of. Likewise, with the Affordable Care Act, which is as a legislative accomplishment is a very big deal, and yet it is filled with, again, carve-outs and exceptions and, and special um, privileges given to organized interests. It is not a coherent piece of legislation that is trying to create systematic reform that cuts down costs in a systematic way and attends to the health of, uh, of Americans in ways that are, um, are most effective and efficient. Um, it, it's the handiwork, again, of a collective decision-making body. And presidents are different. Presidents have a different outlook than do legislators. And so our interest in thinking about um, giving uh, a space for presidents to, pl to play a, a larger agenda-setting role is to, is to privilege the, the unique view that presidents have in our system of separated powers. Yeah, in fact, um, you bring it up a lot in some of the articles in the book I've, that I've read. And we'll have to take a break and talk about it after the break. But uh, the fact that presidents worry about their legacy, they're not worried about an election necessarily in two years. They're worried about their presidential uh, legacy in the whole of the country and in the whole of, um, of history. Let's take a break. Again, we're speaking with Dr. William Howell. He is uh, talking to us about his book, Relic. He's co-authored the book with Terry Moe. Relic, How Our Constitution Undermines Effective Government and Why We Need a More Powerful Presidency. We'll be back. More with Dr. Howell in just a minute. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. We are on the phone with Dr. William Howell. He is uh, the co-author with Terry Moore of the book Relic, How Our Constitution Undermines Effective Government and Why We Need a More Powerful Presidency. He is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Chicago and the Sidney Stein Professor in American uh, Politics at, at uh, Chicago Harris. He's talking to us today about his book and... The book is a really interesting, I think, uh, starting point to, to begin a discussion about the Constitution and the document that was uh, written 200 years ago for a completely different type of world where we wanted to protect our local powers. We wanted to protect, you know, the individual local rights, uh, even, you know, maybe more more valuable than worrying about an, in, an entire 300 and whatever 50 million person country. It, it was written in a way that maybe um, has created some problems. And uh, Dr. Howell is talking to us about the fact that we now have separation of powers, president, uh, Congress, and even in the judicial system. All of a sudden, the president doesn't necessarily have the power to push the legislation uh, and, I guess, initiate the legislation, and Congress um, – does. But Congress a lot of times is vying more for the parochial needs, the local needs, and also have to worry about their their election in two years. So it's an interesting discussion. Dr. Howell, thank you for leading us in it, and, and welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here. This is um, these are they're, they're big themes here that we're asking yeah. uh, people to grapple with. And I love it. I mean, I, I'm sure 
there's a backlash, right? Because without even knowing it and people think, oh, great, give a president more power. He's already writing all of these executive orders. But it seems like a lot of presidents have been doing that lately, which might be proving your point. I think that that's right. I think that presidents cast about looking for some opportunity to affect change precisely because they are functioning from the backseat of government constitutionally. It's that Congress is in charge through the lawmaking process, and Congress is channels all kinds of pathologies. And so presidents, in an effort to, to solve big national problems, um, they, you know, they, 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 they try to drum up authority where they can find it. But it and, and which makes sense politically, but it isn't obviously in the best interests of our country. When what we want, what we need is thoughtful, um, systematic reform in all kinds of domains, uh, both domestic and foreign, but we can't get it. Um, and so what we're encouraging people to do is to think about, again, that point of origin and how the system of government that we have might be refashioned in a way that allows for effective government. So do you, do you sense if, if we could go in and, and uh, actually start to rewrite parts of the powers, balance of powers, what would you see would need to take place? Well, what we call for is um, – is a more powerful presidency, but not a generically more powerful presidency. It's a presidency that would take advantage of the unique perspectives and commitments um, that they have in our, in, our, in our politics. I want to be clear about what those are. So whereas legislators pay attention to local interests and privilege those, presidents uniquely in our politics pay attention to national interests. Um, they are the only people who are elected by the nation as a whole. Whereas legislators are worried about the next election two years hence, presidents um, care deeply about their legacy and therefore their, their place in history, and therefore not just the implications for policy change today, but for their implications 10, 15, 20 years hence, and how subsequent historians will will judge them. Whereas legislators pay attention to the pieces, presidents who sit alone atop their governing institution pay attention to the whole, both as they fashion the executive branch and then also as they try to fashion policy. They think about how the parts of policy can fit together in ways that actually make sense. And so what we call for when we say a more powerful presidency is a presidency that will be able to set the terms of debate because we need debate yeah. um, about these hard problems. This is not about just handing it over, handing the keys over to the president. It's about letting the president set the terms of debate um, and increasing his, someday her, agenda-setting powers. Um, so, And this is not to the exclusion of traditional lawmaking as we understand it. It's not about quashing local interests. It's about letting presidents come forward and articulate a vision that then, pre- that then legislators have to deal with mm. um, and have to deal with on the president's terms. So, so there, it seems like in some ways they're already doing that, like in the presidential uh, election, um, this process that we're all kind of going through is they, they will propose their ideas, but you're saying they can't come out and, and initiate legislation Normally, historically, wouldn't they just go partner with senators and congressmen and put or, and women and put a, a, an agenda together and then propose legislation through their, you know, their team of congressmen and women? 
That's what they do. So they can't, presidents can't formally introduce legislation right. on their own. They, they require a, a friend within Congress to do so. But then having, once the, the, their policy is introduced, legislators set to work on doing what they do best, which is introducing all kinds of amendments sure. and carve-outs and exceptions Gumming to, it up. to their parochial interests. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then they also do what they do best, which is to delay and to duck and dodge. Yeah. So often, presidents, they simply can't get a vote on a policy proposal that they put forward. Presidents, there's a long history of legislative proposals made by presidents that die not at the hands of majorities voting against them, but die at the hands of um, ma- uh, majority party leaders who simply refuse to bring forward what it is that the president has on offer. And mm. so what we, what we want to argue is that the president should have something akin to universal fast-track authority. It's something that they have right now when it comes to trade policy, when the president can come forward, introduce a bill, and that Congress has to vote on it on an up-or-down basis uh, within a fixed period of time. Now, they're free to vote it down and carry on their merry way and introduce an alternative that they would like to see. But what they can't do is amend it beyond recognition or bury it in committee. Mm. They have to vote on it, again, on an up-or-down basis within a fixed period of time, lest it become law. And that that will privilege, again, these national long-term considerations in policy debates that we need to have about these hard problems that stand before the country. And that, I guess, yeah, that, again, would give more power to the president. Do we need to fear, uh, or would would the checks and balances take care of that, that a, a president would abuse the power? Well, we we should worry about any time power is conferred upon anyone, we should worry about how it's going to be exercised, for sure. But let's be clear here, we're talking about a, a situation wherein the only person in the legislative process that can propose laws is within Congress. And so right. all we're doing is saying, well, why shouldn't the president be able to as well and, be, and, to, and then to have a debate on his someday her terms? Um, that can't happen now. Um, and so this isn't about undoing checks and balances. It's not about, again, handing the keys of government over to the president. It's simply about giving a president a platform on which to speak in ways that will lead to more effective policy, to to argue on behalf of national long-term interests that produces coherent, effective policy in ways that we, can't ha- we, we simply can't have when we work exclusively within Congress. And especially when we live in this trans- more transparent society with more information access and the ability for people to actually sit in and watch debate taking place. We don't, we don't see much debate. We see, you know, we see all of these different uh, you know, like machinations that you're talking about, these maneuverings of uh, just, you know, overburdening legislation, legislation being written by everybody but staff, but the, the legislators themselves. And wouldn't it be great to have a debate? I guess the fast ru- fast track authority rule would at least force everybody to get their vote out there. And we all know where everyone's standing. And then let's talk. Exactly. And you've got to talk about these issues, again, not exclusively on the basis of how they're going to affect your constituency, but you're going to need to think about what implications this policy change has for the country as a whole and in the long term, because those are the unique considerations that presidents bring to bear when they try to advance policy change. This is not an argument that's meant to privilege liberals or conservatives, right? Republicans and Democrats. This is about thinking about the unique voice that presidents in our politics have. And 
And I think that you're right. We, we may move beyond the kind of vacuous position taking that occurs within this dysfunctional Congress of ours and allow for a more open, meaningful debate where legislators have to take a position on bills that are actually produced. They don't get to amend these bills beyond recognition and carve out all kinds of exceptions for the, the local organized interests within their districts and states. They've got to say, look, this is where I stand on this issue as the president's articulated it. Mm. That would be good for our politics. Is it okay? Here's the crazy question, Dr. Hal. Is it possible to do this? I mean, uh, let's plausible. Is this doable? A con- is this a constitutional revision or could this just be, you know, a, a f- some legislative decision we make and get everyone on board? I mean, can this happen? So the, this is a great question. So the, 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 the fast-track authority that the president currently has in trade policy has been delegated legislatively. Mm. We're talking about something bigger and something that would be made permanent, that wouldn't be subject to the discretion of legislators, and that wouldn't apply you know, uniquely to one policy domain. And our sense is that then a constitutional amendment would be needed in order to, um, in order to affect this change. Wow. Um, and any time you're talking about a constitutional amendment, right, yeah. if you're going to place bets and you've got <laughs> even, you know, and you're given even odds, you should vote, you know, you should place the bet against it. It's not likely to happen. It's a big hurdle to jump through uh, over. That said, we're talking about a set of institutional changes that build on past changes. We have a lot of experience with the precisely the kind of institutional change that we're arguing with for in fast-track authority, but so too with the budget. The president proposes a budget. It has ever since 1921 in order to initiate the appropriations process. Now, it's a budget that Congress is free to subsequently ignore, and they, and they often do. But we, we have experience with presidents playing a larger proposal-making role. I think there's lots of disaffection in the American public with the capacity of our uh, of our government to solve problems, and the problems that we're talking about are real. Yeah. Um, and so the possibilities for affecting meaningful change, meaningful institutional change, the need for it is is real. And and our hope is is that if we can generate enough discussion about these these problems that we face in our day, um, uh, the possibilities for institutional change will arise. Yeah. And the efficiencies that could come from this too because you could you could just push you could push ideas faster and more targeted legislation, more targeted changes. I mean, I think it'd be fantastic. What uh, do you see what do you think about our local or not our local, but our current um handful of candidates running? Uh anybody you know behind you on this? Anybody that's already supportive of this idea that you know of? Uh, Don't know about any individuals. I will say that presidents, precisely because they are constantly scrambling around, right, looking for a way to get leverage so that they can advance an agenda, I I can't imagine any president disavowing this once in office. Now, the the way that this politics usually works, though, is that when you – you want to give this power to the president as long as your guy, your gal, right, office, exactly. right? But when the opposition is, you want to do everything you can to curtail the powers available to him or her. Now, this is why we say, though, this is not a partisan argument. This is about recognizing the unique voice that presidents have, regardless of whether or not they're Democrats or Republicans. They all pay attention to the nation as a whole. They all pay attention to the long term. They have very different ideas about what's in the best interests of the nation as a whole and in the long term. Yeah. Right. There are meaningful ideological differences between Democrats and Republicans, for sure. That's why we have elections to choose who we're going to have. But 
but the, I think the real question before us when we think about institutional reform is whether or not we're going to privilege local short-term interests to the exclusion of national long-term interests, because that's what we do now. And, and the result is all kinds of political dysfunction and an inability to solve problems. And the power of the people, it seems like the power – we have the power if we make enough noise about this and push and talk more about this, we can do something. But we still have to pry it the power, I guess, of the, the legislative agenda setting out of the hands of Congress, which is they're going to fight like a dog to just keep it the way it is. They they may well, but there are also moments when legislators recognize they're just not up to the task at hand. Yeah. They've delegated all kinds of authority to presidents during times of emergency. Um, it was a it was a Republican Congress in the late '90s that gave Clinton the line item veto, which right. is a different kind of power than what we're talking about. But they did so precisely because they recognized they were ill-equipped to curtail spending. Yeah, um, and so they saw this as a way to to find an extra institutional check on on what they do best, which is, right, earmarks for favored interests within their local um, um, districts and states. So it's not unprecedented. This, this, if, if enough people get talking about it, we might make some headway here. Well, we're going to keep talking about it here. We appreciate you, uh, Dr. William Howell. Interesting, interesting uh, uh, book, and I'm excited to, to continue the discussion because something's got to happen, for heaven's sakes. Thanks again for being with us. Thanks for having me. This is a real pleasure. You bet. Keep up the good work. Uh, again, um, Dr. William Howe, co-author of the book with Terry Moe, uh, Relic, How Our Constitution Undermines Effective Government and Why We Need a More Powerful Presidency. It's complicated, isn't it, folks? But there's a reason why Congress uh, has uh, you know, an approval record at such a dismal low because they're stuck. And something's got to give. And we're afraid of it. I get it. We don't want to give anybody too much power, but the reality is you still have a vote. You still have a say. So stick with us. We're going to continue the discussion um, on the other side of this break, but also uh, throughout the rest of the, the, the time that I'm doing the show, we have got to create some change, and the change is going to have to come from the people, folks. So it may not come from the, these, these great uh, hopes of candidates that we see. In the end, it might just have to come from the people pushing back on the local level even. Well, stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know something's wrong, don't you? With Congress, with Washington, this isn't the way the system works. And on the show, we've brought up uh, many um, different problems and many different reasons for the problems. Instead of just fighting it and you know making fun of it, which is sometimes fun to do just to cope, um, you got. We've also been learning about it. We've brought on professors that have taught us the fact that it's the way, the very structure, the system of uh, Republican Democrat that make it so that a lot of our problems won't necessarily be saved. A two-party method uh, also impacts. Um, but uh, this this book by Dr. Howell about the Constitution also makes sense, doesn't it? It doesn't mean that the the founders of the country weren't brilliant and inspired by principle. They were. But they were also protective of something that they had just been through, you know, with an oppressive uh, 
regime and an oppressive local level concern. We live now in a in a vastly different world, meaning we live in a global world where a trade agreement can seriously impact a country. And um, we're dealing with ISIS and we were dealing with Ebola and we were dealing with all of these um, all of these other issues of immigration and uh, health care issues. The times they've changed, they've been a change in folks. And uh, it might be worth all of us looking at the system, at, at the deeper, deeper um, way that uh, things are happening. A lot of times, like when you go use Google Maps or one of the map programs or like MapQuest or whatever, you'll see that the, the, the roads are the roads, right? And, and this is the most – these are the roads. These are the roads we're supposed to drive on. But a lot of times if you actually watch the flow of traffic, they don't necessarily go where everybody thinks the cars are going. A lot of times people reroute. And once they see that one way isn't working, they'll reroute and go another way, which will work great until everybody figures out the reroute. And then that way won't work anymore. So we might want to go back and just reevaluate what would be the best path to enable a president who's worried about national issues to not have to fight a congressperson on every single battle when the congressperson is trying to get elected and may not know anything about what's going on internationally. It's an interesting thing, and you might even see it coming up in this presidential nomination process and the election process because a lot of people that, as as, uh, Dr. Howell called them, are a bit parochial or a bit kind of local and, you know, focused in their little world may not understand some of the global issues either. It might be interesting to give a little more power to at least introduce legislation to the people that are responsible for it before we just vote people out of office. Crazy, crazy idea, but uh, sometimes the crazy ideas are the ones that work. We'll take a break, folks. That is the first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. More tools, more solutions to help you live longer and love stronger right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Did you know that there was so much research on the spiritual benefits um, and the health benefits of spirituality? So I see it all the time with my clients. They come in and uh, I teach a... I teach a basic concept of body, mind, spirit, that everything we do, we are going to either have to orient from our body, our mind, or the way we think, or our spirit. Our spirit, I teach, basically knows peace. The example I always give, um, like adults, about the spirit is when you're holding your baby, you're in the middle of the night, you're not you know, thinking he's going to be president or anything, you're just calm, you're rocking your baby to sleep, and you just feel love and peace and just you just feel joy right to me that's the power of the spirit spirit uh is and, and again and she described it so beautifully dr lisa miller did spirit is is the essential form of who we all are and every major religion is basically going to understand that there's some spiritual part of us that spirit's always operating i believe it's inside of each of us then we all have minds and we have bodies 
the mind, the, so the spirit brings the peace. The mind wants to be popular. The mind wants to be pretty. The mind is the identity we've all set up for ourselves. So we come to this earth, and when you sit there and you look at that cute baby, and that baby's you know two months old or five months old or ten months old, and you're like, oh, you're so beautiful. Look at your eyes. You're so smart. You're the smartest baby. Oh, you throw that ball so hard. All of those different things start to create an identity for this child. And eventually that child is going to think that it is all of these things, blue-eyed, blonde hair, whatever, throws a great curveball. But the problem is that's not who you are spiritually, right? So there's a little bit of a discord between who you are spiritually and who your mind thinks you are. You might even just think you're a, a guy or a gal, or you might think you're smart or you're not. Oh, yeah, I'm not very smart. I didn't do very well on the ACT. Failed the ACT. So all of a sudden, because you failed the ACT, your mind thinks that's who you are. Now, do you think your spirit cares about your ACT? Your spirit knows that you're this being that's been living and has existed and you're powerful beyond measure. Yeah, but I'm fat. That's my mind telling me I'm fat. Or I can orient from my body. And my body basically wants pleasure or pain or procreate. That's pretty much what it brings. Or the party. What's for dinner? So sometimes we come to life and and we let our bodies, our desires, direct us. Sometimes if I have fear, my body might feel fear because I've got to go talk to my boss about whatever. So my body creates chemistry. My mind makes up a story. Yeah, he's not going to like me because of this and this and this, which creates complexity. But at any point, we can get back to our spirit. So however you get to spirit, some meditate, some read scriptures, some will sing a hymn. Some will just think of their God. Imagine your God just holding you as you're, you know, walking in with you to go talk to your boss. If you have to go in with your God, what on earth is your boss going to do that will matter? You can still feel peace, right? So body, mind, spirit. And I'm telling you, I teach this all the time to people and they come in and once they can start to recognize if they're feeling you know, body, mind, or spirit, then we can get back to the spiritual core, I call it. We've got to get back to that spiritual sense of who we all are. And when we do, we feel peace instantly. Now, it doesn't change everything, right? It just changes how you see everything. If you just lost your spouse to cancer, you're going to probably have to operate at all three of those levels. Your body will miss that person. It will ache to be next to that person. It will create major pain chemistry. Your mind will start creating major fears and convolutions like, oh, am I going to be able to make it? I don't know if I have enough money. I don't even know where the insurance is. What if I can't find somebody else? What if if nobody wants to be around me? Our fears start to come up. Fears don't exist in your spirit. They don't even exist in your body. Your body's going to respond to a stimulus. It's not just going to automatically feel the fear. Something's got to kick in, right? That might be the mind. So the mind starts to kick in and create stories for you. So a lot of times our grieving is us trying to manage our mind. A lot of times our fear, the most difficult things on this earth tend to be, I believe, conjured by the mind. So body, mind, spirit, we're doing it all the time. Coaching 101, the number one secret, let me tell you. You don't need to get in spirit. You already are in spirit. You just need to notice where you are. 
And the minute you notice if you're in body, mind, or spirit, you're already moving to spirit. Because the only thing that notices its mind is the spirit. Right? The mind doesn't notice itself. That's It thinks that that's who you are. But when you start looking at yourself like, are you kidding me? I'm making such a big deal over something that's so stupid. The minute you're starting to think that way, you're already moving into your, your spirit. Again, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. We're not just human beings having a spiritual experience. It's, it's the most powerful tool I've ever seen. I have a son that's in Mexico serving a, a mission for the LDS Church in northern Mexico, and we, had, we got to talk to him on Mother's Day. And he just sat there and spoke spiritually to my other son that's about to go on a mission. And it was the most amazing spirit-to-spirit conversation you've ever seen. And I could see my son's mind spinning because, oh, he's so scared to go out and doesn't know what he wants to do. And my other son just basically shared his testimony, his belief, and the spirit talked to spirit. It was the most incredible thing. Folks, everybody out there, the people in the car in front of you, they're all spiritual beings. Whatever your religion, we're all just spiritual beings trying to make it through this crazy thing we call life. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Honestly, um, a drought in the West... Do you remember the Dust Bowl, you know, in the Midwest, um, the Depression? Do you remember Hurricane Katrina? I mean, a problem in any part of the country is a problem for everybody in the country. Your, you know, economic problems in California are going to impact everybody. So when we think about any of these challenges, I, I would just, as part of the Coach's Corner, challenge all of us to remember, and, and Tony Arnold, our earlier guest, brought up a great word, or two, or actually three, uh, hope, and he, he taught us that hope is a byproduct of having agency, knowing that you have choices to make, that you are an agent that will act, and I believe every human being on this earth is here to act. You're not just here to be acted upon. You're here to act. You're not even just here to let, you know, nature act just upon you. You can also proactively choose how you're going to manage nature to the degree that you can manage nature, right? Um, You also have, so you have agency. You also have to keep your choices and your options open. I would call that freedom. He calls it pathways. But the more freedom you have, we can have all the rights in the world and the freedom in the world. But if you don't act on the freedom because or you don't see that you have freedoms, then they're not there for you. So hope is a byproduct of knowing you're an agent with choices. And the best way to get more choices is to keep your mind open and keep learning more and more things. And the more things you know, the more choices you have, which gives you more hope. Right. The minute you have no more options and you don't think you are an agent, we're in trouble. And so when we're trying to sit and think about managing our our, our monies or if we're trying to manage our water supply, uh, we've got to know that we're agents. And so think about that. It's one thing in this world to be given all the rights that we have. But with every right is a demanded responsibility. We hear the Supreme Court making decisions all the time that are holding up rights. And with those rights come responsibilities for all of us. Um, and with water usage comes certain responsibilities, especially if you want to be part of the community of water. And this demands management, and this demands some proactivity and some planning and some, some, some 
choices to be made. That was one word he brought up was the hope. Another one he brought up that I think is fascinating is stewardship. Do you feel as a user that you have a stewardship over how much money or how much water you use? We made a mistake once. One of our lines in our house uh, broke, and it was an underground line outside, and it was just spewing water for months. We didn't even know about it. And um, we eventually had the water you know, company come to us and just say, whoa, you've used thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water. <sighs> I felt horrible. I felt guilty. Like, we felt guilty. Because we've wasted all of this water. And our kids come home and tell us to turn off our water and don't brush your teeth with the water on. Do you feel like you're a steward of your resources in your city, in your community? Because every one of us, we are. And steward is, is a really sacred thing. You have, the, you have the stewardship of the environment, but you also have the stewardship of your family to teach your family how to appreciate and love and care for the environment and you don't have to be a you know big tree hugger to go do that, but you can, you can be a good steward. So just remember those words: steward, agent, options, right, pathways, and hope. It's all good, folks. It's all good. Uh, West will make it through the drought. Let's just let's just plan. Let's get on the same page. Let's be cooperative. Let's be good stewards. That's the coach's corner. We're going to take a break. More on the Matt Townsend show next. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach. Hey, in the uh, coach's corner today, uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, some uh, an article we've been reading and, and working on and, fi- and learning about, basically, that science and spirituality, do the two go together? One of the things that, uh, that I do a lot with um, when I'm off the air is I work with couples who need to figure out how to solve problems, right? And I found that uh, many times we come to this weird place in a conversation with somebody that we care about. You know, it's an important discussion. Maybe it's about our children, how we discipline our kids or our budget. And think about it. You do it every day. You have tension. You have issues that you need to talk to the people around you every day, right? And um, when it gets hard... One of the things I found uh, that might be causing some of the strain or some of the difficulty is when we absolutely feel secure and confident, like so strong and confident about something that uh, we fight from our confidence level and we, we – a lot of times we'll just run over people. We'll, we'll you know, dominate the conversation. We might name call. We become mean. We become brutal. And as I work with these couples, I found that many times when somebody is coming off way, way confident, a lot of times they're not even in their thinking brain. They're in their reactive brain. They are in their fight or flight, you're going to die or else brain. And we get in there and think about it. We've talked about it on the show a lot about that fight or flight brain that when when all of a sudden it fires and your body for some reason feels like you're being threatened, that you're being diminished, that you're going to lose position or ground or hierarchy, 
Anytime your brain thinks you're shrinking in power, then it's a threat. So what we tend to do is we tend to amp up with chemistry. I call that being hijacked or jacked up. I love telling my clients, man, you are jacked up. But what happens to us is we begin, we begin to become almost myopic in our thinking, right? And you do it. I do it. And we argue a point as if it's a fact when many times it's just an opinion. Now, here's the dilemma. How am I supposed to open up my brain to allow more information in, be more open, more available, more willing to learn if I'm already chemically charged to just crush you, right? And it happens just all of the time, watching the news. Do you ever sit and watch the, the news and see even the Trump protests last night? And you start to have a, a visceral reaction to it. Yeah, well, man, if they wish they could get inside the Trump meetings instead of outside protesting, they, I mean, all of a sudden you have this visceral reaction and we start to fight for our position. And we're fighting for our position not because it's ethical per se. We might have an ethical argument, but I'm pretty sure if you were using your ethical argument, you wouldn't say that violence is then the way to fix it, right? Because that would actually seemingly go against your ethics. When we have that chemical reaction, we are not in a position to talk. We don't want more information. We want to either fight somebody, run and flee, or we're just stuck in the like a deer in the headlights. Do you experience this? That, to me, that hijacking of chemistry is what's killing all of us. And it's a natural process. And many times people will argue it's logical. It's logical. What? Am I just supposed to stand by and let Trump ruin the country? Or am I just supposed to stand by and let protesters destroy property just to be against Trump? No, I've got to go fight them. Logical. All your buddies be like, fight him. The problem is if we don't turn off that just reactive kind of natural man fight or flight mentality, it is the cause of most of our biggest problems on this earth. It is, it is what's killing us. It is the cause of the bullying that happens in our schools. It is the cause of the bullying that happens online. It's the cause of the disparity and the discrepancy uh, where we can't even hear another person's point of view because it's so – we're so sick of hearing their point of view. It's the problem between the right and the left. This isn't just a battle of ideas. The battle is the battle of chemistry. And once that chemistry fires, we're in trouble because the minute it fires, it creates major problems for all of us because we feel like we're right. And in my program, I teach that that's a concept called logical force. Once um, our brain fires, we use our logic to convince our fight or flight brain and to basically kind of buoy up our argument that this is okay to do. It's okay to be a jerk to someone down the street because they 
were they said something mean to your daughter. It's okay to ignore your spouse or it's okay to, um, you know, talk to other people at work about your spouse because your spouse isn't into you enough. That seems logical, right? The problem with logical force, though, is many times it's not moral. Many times what you think is logical when your brain is firing and ready to go crush somebody, (laughs) what is logical is not moral. You don't want at your funeral that everybody is talking about how rude you were to the neighbor and how – what I, what I miss most about grandpa is how grandpa never talked to his neighbor for 44 years because when they were, when they were 18, that neighbor, you know, kissed his girlfriend. I miss grandpa. You're not going to – that's not how you want to go down, is it? Is that how you want to go down in history? Is this the guy that held a 44-year grudge? Well, what, well, what? what am I supposed to do? Just let a jerk like that into my life? See how logical that sounds? Well, no, of course not. But you don't need to let a jerk or a person that kissed your girlfriend when you were 18. You don't have to let him into your life. But you also don't have to have a feud with him for 44 years. See, there's a difference between logic and morality. And why I differentiate is that even if it's logical for you to go protest somebody – that you don't like. I get that. That's pure logical. That's beautiful. The problem is if it breaks down into immorality where you start doing something that's not moral, then in the end, you're the one that pays because you're the one that's doing the immoral thing. Well, yeah, but I'm just fighting immorality with immorality. (laughs) Exactly. And it won't work. You have to fight something that you don't agree with, something that you don't like, with moral means, not immoral means. Two wrongs don't make a right, right? So you have to have some moral compass. Oh, look at you on your high horse. No. Don't know what else to say. But I think it's a big battle that we have in life anyway because – it doesn't have to just be spirituality and morality or, you know, objective data. The reality of life is that we have to have a complex solution to be able to do both. There is a way that your morality and spirituality can totally jive and should totally jive with what's going on in life, Right? You've got to be able to find a way where spiritually you can connect and understand what science is proving and showing. They can go together. They can go together. You just have to figure out how, which seems like the perfect route that we all need to use to maybe, if you're spiritual, exercise your faith. And if you're supposedly scientific and objective, then then don't be so biased. The problem with, with life, and we see it right now with religious freedom, 
uh, everybody is, you know, all, so many people are fighting for religious freedom, the rights of religions and, and churches and, and people to be able to have a right to their conscience. But simultaneously, uh, you have other people that, that don't think you should have that right. And those people that think that are really pushing back on religious freedom are the ones that were oppressed for years by a lack of freedom or a lack of openness by religions, let's say. Isn't that crazy? Is it logical? Sure, it's logical to want to do whatever. But the reality is, is is it moral? Is it moral? Eh. In the end, the morality's got to be there, right? Because th- that's what's going to create your peace for you. If you don't have that, you're not going to have the peace. You won't have it, friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Come right back. Continue uh, learning, doing what we can to give you the tools in life and help you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. To the Matt Townsend Show. Today we uh, we're talking about you know your choices. You got a lot of choices you got to make, and there's a, there's a variety of ways that uh, we could be making them. Hey, uh, FEC, the Federal Election Commission is all over Representative Duncan Hunter from San Diego <laughs> for uh, use of campaign funds to pay for video games on 68 separate occasions. Something the congressman is attributing to a mistake by his son. How many times have you ever looked at your phone bill or your cell phone bill and you've seen all these charges run up? Yeah. He's blaming his son. His hunter listed $1,302 worth of Steam game expenses on his campaign finance disclosure form for 2015 year end. (sighs) Apparently his son has been playing some video games. And now, boom, booyah, the son, just all the charges went right on the credit card. Dad didn't know about it. And those credit cards were then just put on the FEC forms for reimbursement, right? You know, now, unless... You know, Representative Duncan has got – Duncan Hunter has got something going on with video games. But it tells you even your national representatives, they you know they have kids too that are out of control. Unless it's the congressman who's playing video games. What have you been doing, Duncan, with your time? <laughs> His son's like, Dad, don't blame me for that. It's totally you. It's totally you. Um, anyway, crazy, crazy stuff. So if you thought parenting was hard, you know, just recognize that even the people in Congress struggle having time to talk to their kids. Yeah. yeah. Probably. What else is going on? NFL draft last night. Draft. Did you watch any of it? No. Yeah. I watched a couple picks and then after a while you're like, I don't want to hear people speculate forever. It's I told not, my kids, hey, interesting. you guys, the draft is on. Do you guys want to watch that? And all my kids are like. Why? Huh? No. Don't you want to see who's going to be the next millionaire? <laughs> That's what it is. It really is. For the first 20, I guess. 
Any anything new? Any well interesting news? The uh, the first pick was a lot of intrigue because the L.A. Rams they traded multiple picks this draft and yeah. years down the road to get the number one pick to get numero uno. They just moved from St. Louis to Los Angeles. They're trying to have a huge media punch in that area. So they a lot of interest, a lot of people coming into so the they, games. They got rid of they they pay they use the money from or the the drafts from a few years from now to get the best draft pick today. Yes. And they picked up a quarterback from University of California. Okay, that's handy. The Cal Bears, his name's Jared Goff. He's yeah. an okay quarterback. Just, he was I heard he was fourteen and twenty three all time as a quarterback in wow. college, which fourteen wins. Fourteen wins, twenty three losses. Seems like not a great record. Now, now he, he he when it comes to his quarterbacking skills, they are above they're, par. They're pretty good. Yeah. I don't know if he's the type of player you trade your draft away to yeah. to get, but they did, so we'll see what happens. Well, this is it because he could be big or just Ryan Leaf. Yeah, and usually the odds are that you're not necessarily going to be a Hall of Famer because that's right. kind of rare. But mm-hmm. So they did that. Uh, also, along the way, a, a man named uh, Laramie Tunsil. Mm-hmm. He is a, a player from, I believe, Mississippi. And he was supposed to be possibly a number one pick oh, or, really? a, or a top five at yeah. least. And... Um, Things happened to him. There was a problem where somebody, as he said, hacked his social media, which yeah. is always the excuse that happens when yeah. things ha- get posted to your social media that you don't want there. Right. There was some video of him, you know, looks as if he was doing some drugs. Oh, boy. So that goes to character. Okay. That goes to judgment. On the day of the draft, this happened? Yeah. Oh, that's bad. So that ended up, I think that was on Twitter. And then there was another conversation between him and an assistant athletic director on Instagram as to who would be paying for his mother's rent. Wow. You're not supposed to yeah, – college athletes aren't supposed to take money. Yeah, I know. Again, another judgment question now, issue. Uh, college athletes' mother also apparently not supposed to take money? Yeah, you're not supposed to get kickbacks from the team. How about grandparents? Can college no, players' grandparents? No, you're, you're really not supposed to be taking wow. money in the form of cash in that yeah. way. So both of those things combined to have this gentleman drop from a top five pick to 13th overall. Wow. Which you may think, that's, yeah, not, that's not a big deal. Is that deal. bad? I mean, that's, he's still I, He probably rounder. went from making about $25 million, signing a $25 million contract to a $13 million contract. So, half. Oh, you know, I'd take either. Well, either. But, I mean, yeah, his earning potential was it. allegedly cut by half, if the reports I read were Do you accurate. think the teams, because it's probably, so some team you're thinking then chose not to go Several. with him. Maybe, p- perhaps four or five decided to skip him. Yeah, we don't need that. Yeah. And wow. so by doing so, uh, the speculation was that he, if he finds out who was, if it was indeed hacked, and it wasn't just he posted something because he's a goofy college kid, yeah. um, then there could be the possibility of litigation. Oh, boy. Because there, you can prove, you, yeah. if you're like a number two pick, you make this much money. If you're the 13th pick, you make this much money. But What's who, the difference? Who would he get the money from? Whoever hacked his account. One of his buddies? Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> like some college One of his kid. entourage? So it's just, there's some... Uh, oh, that's he, hard. He took a huge that's financial hard. hit off two social media posts last night. Yeah, and he could easily blow a knee in the first year and never have money again. Very well. So that's, but this comes just days after Johnny Manziel. Yeah. And all the problems Cleveland had with him. <sighs> and he gets, you know, who indicted the other day. Cleveland. Cleveland oh, this, did this, this yeah. guy. I can't remember who he was actually selected by. That's just sad. 
I mean, the day you're about to hit big, the big money. Oh, apparently he fell to the Miami Dolphins at 13. Hmm. So Boy, that's a good place to go. There you go. go. Go play in Miami. Go play on the beach. Go lay out. Uh, speaking of beaches, do you remember our famous story about the whale? Oh yeah, like it's he, back in San Diego. Yeah, on the beach. Yeah, they're figuring. How out, is it back? He's dead. Uh, no, they're yeah, it's back. <laughs> it's a dead whale. Uh, they're try. They figured out how to get rid of it. Oh, okay. What are they going to do? It is. Are they going to blow it up? No. Oh. Blow up the whale. Did you hear the seagull? I, th- I hope that was a seagull. Um, so there's a dead whale. We talked about this the other day. There's a yeah. dead whale on uh, the Saint- San Onifer's State Beach near, I guess, San Diego. Yeah, it's in that region. And it's really stinking up the place. Yeah. And it's leaking fluids mm. from everywhere. It's about, what would you say, 60,000 pounds? That's what they're saying. About yeah. 40 feet long, 60,000 yeah. pounds. So here's the deal. They've decided – and again, this to me seems like um, – what's the word? It seems like a, a 21st century solution uh-huh. to an age-old problem. If we just left it there. It would take care of itself. It would eventually take care of itself. Yeah. If they just rolled it out into the ocean, I mean, I guess it would make the beaches kind of – no one could go near it or whatever. But the ocean would take care of it as yeah. it does every other whale that dies in the ocean. <laughs> right. But they die out at sea, not on the beach. Right. But what they've decided to do is get a backhoe okay, and just start breaking the thing down into pieces. Oh, who gets that job? I know. And then load it into a truck. All right. Drive it through the city and then go dump it at a dump and bury it. Okay. To feed, I guess, the worms, the microbes and worms yeah. of the dirt. Mm. Okay. That's an option, About $30,000 to remove it. And there's limited access because there's uh, yeah. there's like a, t- a bridge to get on access to the beach. So they have to get the vehicles through that. So It seems hmm. like if this is a problem that happens a lot, like I've seen on the roads in Utah, that there's companies that will go get the roadkill mm-hmm. because they can use it for something, glue or something. Yeah, there's and some they, use they're finding for it. I mean, and in some places like in the south, they'll make dinner out of some of it. Well, there's the whole roadkill cafe fresh, joke, you got to right? get it fresh. But um, – <laughs> Why Why couldn't you just have a beach company that will remove your whale carcass and the minute the whale carcass does is the, there – Does that company exist? I bet I, I bet they would. A beach company? Well, no. A company that just okay. does the same thing roadkill for the beach. For the beach. Here's why I say that. If you wait, I don't know, three weeks yeah. of a rotting whale, well, it's going to be a lot harder to move. There's the problem of it's a popular beach and they want to keep it open to the public and there's sure. this. Yeah. But so it seems like the minute yeah. you've got a whale, then what you need to do is have a doctor, a vet arrive and they could post the time of death <laughs> and make sure it's dead, which you got to do. And then what I would do is call, you know, the beach people. Okay. Beach combers are us. Mm. In fact, write that down, Ben, because this might be a new business idea. New business, beachcombers. And it seems like that day, remove the whale immediately. Yeah. Remove the whale. Okay, what's the name again? Uh, beachcombers are us. Okay. Also, dead whale, dot, 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 on it, exclamation point. Okay, is, is there going to be like a, a colon and then... Uh, let's dot, leave dot, that, dot, I'll leave that it. up to creative. Okay. Yeah. We'll yeah. have to leave branding to someone else. 
But I think the funny thing is, is if you took a whale that died within a mo- within an hour, right, you could probably harvest it, right? For some reason, yes. But instead, is it just sitting there because we don't know what to do and we don't know if it's dead and we're trying to be ecologically friendly and I don't know. What are we doing? I don't know. We remove a deer off the side of the road in we a do. day. It doesn't weigh 60,000 pounds though. No, I know. But that's why you need a company. You need a company <laughs> but, but who I don't knows know they, how to do this. But they can't – there's no business there. This isn't a common thing in San Diego. That's why it's well, a story. Well, no, but, well, but if it's not in San Diego, there's going to be one in Santa Monica and there's going to be one in Santa Barbara and there's going to be one up in Maine. I, I still don't know if it's And there's going to be two down in Mexico and Guadalajara. I don't know if that's inland or not. <laughs> but it just seems like to me – Okay, that's one idea. Another idea, immediately push the thing with front loaders back into the ocean and tow it out. Hmm. Tow it out. Five miles. Except they have very shallow waters and they can't get boats in there. They've thought about that. That was one of the options, but they just can't get the boat in there. And so – If we can get to the moon (laughs) – There's a a will, there's a way. We can get a tugboat or whatever you need. A tugboat and a 5,000-foot chain – this is could pull it out. This is all I'm saying. You clear the beach for the for the day, right? And then just in the middle of the day, boom. Yeah, but then inland, about two miles, you got some lady scraping <laughs> <laughs> scraping they're, they're Crisco more, off. Or, they're more bite sized pieces at that point. <laughs> I must be missing something. If I'm missing something, give us a call one eight five five chat BYU. What am I missing? Pull the thing out into the ocean. <laughs> Just pull it out into the ocean. Yeah. I, I get it. It's hard to get a boat there. Yeah. They, I mean, they, they just they, – they, it's not – you can't get a boat close enough. We, we had boats that stormed Normandy. <laughs> we did. But Bring were, five of those boats. They were different. They, they came in and stormed Normandy. They right. stormed it. Yeah. Get five of those boats and then five tugboats in front of those <laughs> and pull the stupid thing off and push it and pull it. Yeah. But you got to do it in day one. Day five, it's going to be messy. <laughs> day one, get it out of here. Holy cow. This will be a problem. I am, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be running for office. We're going to follow this story because you know there's going to be more chaos with it. They're not, this isn't going to no. go away easily. And just, by the way, the trauma of these children watching a backhoe. But it's a whale. <laughs> what are they doing? What are they doing to that whale, Daddy. Oh, they're just backhoeing it to death. Well, it's actually already dead, just into pieces. Then they're going to dig. Oh, I mean, man. 30 grand. Are you kidding? Yeah. Holy cow. There's people that harvest these for their food well, in Alaska. Bring yeah. one of them down. <laughs> Pay him five grand. Man. Pay him five grand to come down and consult. What do we do with this? He'd yeah. have so many ideas. Or she. Or she. Doesn't matter. Don't limit. I guess we've got to take a break, a fast break. We'll be back in about a minute, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Hey, a little coach's corner here on learning. Uh, everybody is – we're just different, right? We're all so different. I remember vividly uh, – I guess it was probably fourth grade. Is that when you learned times tables? Probably third grade. Third grade, yeah. Third grade. 
And uh, I remember our teacher would line us all up, two lines. And I'll never forget this. And uh, I was, we were doing times tables, and she'd then have us pretty much compete head to head on the times table. <laughs> um, you know, she'd flip up the cards, and you'd have to hurry and say the number. You know, you know four times seven twenty-eight, three times four twelve, and you'd have to just throw them out there. Well, I I wasn't the fastest at times tables. I just wasn't there. So, if you lost, she would then point to have you get out of line and she'd say, okay, winners, get in line. And she'd use these words. And losers, to the wall. (laughs) So the losers, so I got in my head when it comes to math that I'm a loser because, yeah, I was always on the wall. I was a loser. Now, let's do a spelling bee, not to brag. I was pretty amazing. As the big guy on campus. Uh, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. However, um, times tables, uh, I was always a loser on the wall. And so I got this idea in my head that I just don't do math. And I, I ended up then going to a private school because of my math probably. And um, anyway, went to high school still struggling with math. And I was taking a math class from a teacher. I'll never forget her, Mrs. Larson, wonderful, wonderful woman. And she had actually taught all of my sisters. Everyone had learned, what what we had all learned is that we don't do math very well. And I think I was in my second year of algebra. And she, I had just messed up on a test she asked me to take the test uh, home, study it, and she was going to let me retake the test. And I was going to study it over the weekend. And I came – I was just came home. I was depressed. I didn't want to spend the entire weekend on this stupid algebra. Oh, my heavens, that nobody's going to even use. Never going to use algebra. And my mom said to me – it was a magical moment. My mom said, what is your deal? I'm like, I hate math and we're never going to need this stuff. And I'll never forget what she said. It was beautiful. She said, Matt, relax. We aren't math people. We, you're a Townsend. We don't do math. We struggle with it. We're not good at it. We're not math people. And right then I thought, oh, I'm not a math person. It's like she had diagnosed me. You've got Alzheimer's. Okay, that's my problem. No, but I'm a Townsend. We're not math people. So right then I decided, okay, I guess I don't have to do the math because I'm not a math person. And um, I went – I didn't study that weekend. And I took – I went into my class and she's like, Matt, are you ready to retake that test? And I looked at Mrs. Larson. I'll never forget this moment. I said, you know what? Um, I'm not going to take the test because I'm a Townsend and we don't do math. We're not math people. I'll never forget her look. She was looking over her glasses at me and she pushed them up with her finger and she said, I know, I've I've worked with all of your sisters. I know you guys struggle doing math. And then the moment of all moments, she stuck her chubby little finger right in my chest and she said, but this Townsend, right at me, 
this one's going to do math. And it ruined my entire day because <laughs> it was the first time I had learned that it's mine to do, that there is no disease of math. And just because you have a family that doesn't know how to do it, this teacher instilled in me that I have to learn to do it. It's my responsibility. It's mine to own. It's choice. And if we could teach that idea earlier with our children to be choosing to live their own life and lead their own education, then they will be a lifelong learner. That is, I think, the goal of personalized learning. So uh, take that to the bank, folks. We're going to take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. More tools, more ideas to help you live longer and love stronger. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Marriage is hard, right? And it's, it's even harder just with the typical issues of life. A spouse maybe that is sick, uh, somebody that has lost their job or has mental health issues. There's so many different problems that can come up. Uh, So am I just supposed to stick it out and stay with somebody that doesn't get me? I hear that all the time. And I don't know. But what will you become? And if you do stick it out, and what will you become if you don't? I, I think our assumption is, well, my life would be so much better without it. But many times I think my, my wife's differences, her challenges and her tendencies force me to become a better person. They force me to become the change. And I understand that that doesn't always bring happiness today, but it brings change, growth over time. So maybe – there is a benefit to sticking in it a little longer, and there would be even a greater benefit if my partner would get the fact, too, that they need to change, right? I mean, I have clients that have been living in a one-sided marriage for years, and their spouse does not seem to get it. They think, ah, oh, she's lucky. I am the greatest man in the world. And so I sit there and I worry Because a guy says, no, seriously, you are so lucky to have me. (laughs) Yeah. It may not. There's a little video of a marriage fight. Uh, It may not. it, It may not be what you think it is. And you can keep blowing smoke that you're just a saint. But the reality is everyone's got issues. And if if we can't get real with each other then we're probably going to have to – we're going to become something a lot less than we can become as humans. We're going to fall apart. So there are maybe some ways to motivate your spouse. You don't have to cross the line. You don't have to use ultimatums. Um, You don't have to beat them up if you need to see some change. But one of the things you might want to do is, is find a way to feel love for your partner before you bring up an issue. Most of the time I've found that when we're bringing up our issues with our spouse, we're not bringing up the issue out of love. And why this is so critical is because if I'm feeling anger, 
if I'm feeling frustrated, if I feel like you're taking advantage of me, then I will approach the conversation through that paradigm, through that way of thinking. And when I do that, my tone's going to be totally off. If I have compassion for my partner who maybe doesn't know how to communicate very well, and I feel love, and I feel an appreciation for them, if I can feel that when I go into the conversation, it might help me actually position our discussion better versus if I'm going into the discussion out of judgment. So be careful. Watch out for how you approach and the tone you approach with. Also make sure that you find the um, on switch that's inside your partner. We need to get into people deeply first and find out what does motivate them. There are things that motivate your partner, and there are things that motivate your partner to be a better partner to you. You've seen it at times. So go in and actually pay attention to what they are telling you that, that is a driver. Pay attention to when they are happiest and most connected to you, right? It might be when you're sitting on the couch watching a football game even though you hate football, but you notice they're so much more into you or they're not into you, but they're at least connected in a way, their way. We got to remember the on switch might be on in inside our partners. We need to go find it in there. Just a couple of ideas, folks, to help you uh, motivate your partner. Find the good. Let's do it. Let's work better on our marriages, guys. Pick it up. Do your part. Come on. That's all we got. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. With just the political race the way it is, life seems kind of stressful, doesn't it? Now it's summer, so. Sometimes that relieves some of the stress. Maybe you'll be taking a vacation. But I wanted to give you some some ideas, some tools to de-stress your life a little bit. And I got uh, some of these from Fortune Magazine, 15 Things to Do When You're Feeling Stressed, uh, a great article that was out on June 8th. And, you know, we, we need it. We need to find a way to de-stress if we can. Uh, but one of the ways, the fastest ways that, you know, you may not be thinking about is to increase, to decrease stress, you need to increase your endorphin production. And one of the quickest and surest ways to, to, do, uh, to do that is, you know, just get to the gym. Take a walk. Uh, anything that releases endorphins. Because uh, with endorphin releases, there's the, the, that good feeling, that positive feeling in your body. So, Anything. Take a walk today. And and maybe just because the news is tense and you got a lot of people that'll be talking about it maybe at work, take a break. Get out. Don't just sit around the water cooler and, and keep talking about it. Instead, get up. Go for a walk. Even if you just walk around your building or um, just walk around your wherever you are at home. So positive tool. Just get some exercise in you. Just simple stuff. Not You don't have to sweat it out, but... Something simple. Also, um, maybe a good day today, too, to watch what you're eating. Uh, if you want to decrease your stress, obviously, you might want to watch and, and minimize your um, your caffeine intake, but also watching out for the food you eat. And we've talked about it with uh, our great Ron Hager. He's telling us all the time, eat whole foods. Don't drink your, don't drink your sugars. Um, create a... a Create a space for yourself. Uh, one thing I've done recently at my own house, I'm writing a, a new book, and I just try to get away. I go to my office, sit down there, and just escape and find a space where I can meditate. Um, I'm getting a little bit better at that. I also have to learn to say no 
That's something I'm not great at. We've had on the show just recently some tools on how to say no. So you just go look back in our archives on iTunes or on TuneIn, and you can see a complete interview or two within the last two weeks about learning to say no. Also, um, make a list of your goals, and when you accomplish a goal or even a part of a goal that you're trying to work on, check it off. That also creates a little endorphin, a little dopamine push for you as well. Um, Another way to de-stress would be get lost in a great book. When was the last time you read a book, especially a great book? Um, Possibly another opportunity for you is to talk to other people. And uh, they're calling them mastermind groups, but now more and more people have these groups where they can go share their ideas of what they're doing in their business. It's kind of people that are in similar fields as you. If you're a leader, they might be leaders. Um, If you're a manager, you might have management groups you can go talk to. But get out and talk to other people. I also suggest you leave the office. Get out of the office. Get out of your space. Try to get more sleep. Serve someone. All tools to help you uh, take your life back and hopefully de-stress. So what we're trying to do on the show, help you live longer and get through these tougher days where the news isn't so pretty. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Earlier we were talking about how simply the tone that of how your name um, is, is pronounced, like uh, the phonemes they were calling it, how it comes off the tongue may come off with a, a harshness of tone or maybe a softness of tone, which, which then sends a signal to another person, the listener, that you've got a masculine name or maybe a more a softer name, like Ben. So, you know, it's, it's just tone. And it's something we don't always pay attention to. But in my world of working with couples and communication and people, tone is telling, right? Tone matters. And so I wanted to spend a little time in the coach's corner talking about our tone. And um, it's, it really is, I think, a really powerful indicator of, of what somebody is actually feeling, of their emotion. Emotion is best managed and understood probably through somebody's uh, tone, more through their tone than their words. So pay attention to the tone, right? Tone, remember, is communication. When somebody says, and you can tell they're down, they're depressed, they're in the, sitting on the couch, their arms are folded, they look sad, and you say, are you okay? And they're like, fine. Do you hear the tone? That means they're okay, right? <laughs> yeah, Ben. They're fine. Yeah, because sometimes, like, Kaylee yeah. and I will talk like that and she'll say that. But she's really sad. That's but why she I, says she's okay, so I assume she's okay. Yeah, because she said, I'm okay, but her tone was like, yeah, I'm fine. Could you hear that? It's I subtle. hear, I'm fine. Okay, how about this? Yeah, I'm fine. Do you hear that? She's almost singing. Okay. Yeah, some people, some people are tone deaf. Some people can't hear it. And I appreciate Ben being honest with us today. Because tone, it's, it's communication, right? Tone tells the deeper story. Tone is our friend, not our foe. When somebody, oh, don't you give me that tone. Rapping. 
Yeah, Ben, just sit this one out because that – you might be missing the point. Uh, it's not – you know, tone. Some people just don't hear it. But tone does communicate, communicate uh, distress and levels of stress. So here are some keys. I'm going to give you five keys to recognizing and, and t- either taming your tone when you need to tame it down or recognizing another person's tone. Okay, Five basic keys. Pay attention to them. Ben, take notes because you are going to need to take notes on this one. Okay. Okay. You, you, ben, don't take notes. Don't take notes. Yes, sir. Just listen with your mouth shut. Just listen. Number one, tone is um, tone is not personal. Okay. Tone is not. It's not. They're not trying to beat you up. It's not a personal thing. Tone is just a vibration that's coming from the emotion. It's the it's the real issue. So here are the tools. First, you got to read the signs of distress. Read the tones. If you hear volume getting louder, if you hear the pitch getting higher, or if you notice the pace of the conversation going faster, you got to see those signs. When you see those signs, it's telling you, pay attention to this one. (laughs) This one's a little more erratic. If they're saying things, but they're not saying, but their emotion is showing energy, but they're not communicating using words that show they're mad. For example, just listen to how often we can change the same sentence. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Same sentence, four different meanings. I didn't say that. Okay, so it wasn't you. You did not say that. I didn't say that. You really didn't say what I'm accusing you of saying. I didn't say that. Okay, you didn't speak it. Oh, you wrote it? Okay, you wrote it down on the board. Is that what you did? You didn't say it. You wrote it. I didn't say that. Okay, so you did write it. You just didn't write what I'm saying you wrote. And the only way we can make sense of those same four words, I didn't say that, is by changing our tone and our inflection, right? So we're using this all of the time. But if you hear the volume getting louder, that should tell you something. If you notice the pitch is getting higher, that should tell you something. If you notice it's speeding up, pay attention to it. Then be careful and soften your heart. You cannot not communicate, right? So if I react to your negative tone and I get into my negative tone, then your tone is going to bounce off of me and I'm just going to attack you. Instead, I need to absorb what you're bringing on, your tone. And I don't need to absorb it so I'm destroyed and I can't feel anything. I absorb it so I can better understand you. I want you to share with me so I can better understand you. So I have to soften my heart and allow you to allow this information into me. And instead of just taking the negative interpretation and going with it, I need, to, I need to not just run with it. I need to get myself centered, focus on what I'm trying to do with you. I'm trying to be an influence. I'm trying to help you. And if you can, alter the mood or alter the mode with how I'm going to handle this and how I'm going to adjust the mood. So if I, if I can and they're mad at me and I can see I'm not mad, I'm just tired. Okay, I'm sorry. And I might even at times – Give them some space. But if I come back in the room five minutes later and they seem happier, then I'm going to point out you seem happier. 
Sometimes it's better to just quit talking and maybe find a different mode of communicating, like a letter, a text. And then change what you can in the conversation and realize there are certain things you can't change. But I don't have to get louder because you are. I don't have to get, you know, higher screaming because you are. I don't have to run because you do. Just change the tone, the tempo, the timing. Basic stuff. But hard, isn't it? We'll take a break. Be back. More fun. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, with a rising interest in positive psychology and mindful living, it's becoming clearer, clearer that living a joyful life is a choice. And uh, some practices for choosing joyful living range from gratitude to mindfulness. Our guest today, Deborah Heiss, uh, is the editor and director of um, Light, or, sorry, Live Happy, which is a magazine, a great website, by the way, um, if you go online livehappy.com and just wonderful podcasts there tools uh, that can help you there but also um, Deborah Heiss is the author of the book Live Happy 10 Practices for Choosing Joy and she uh, joins us now live to kind of help us work through our own kind of lack of joy Um, Deborah Heiss welcome to the Matt Townsend Show thank you very much Matt pleasure to be here great to have you talk to us about um the choice, because I, it seems like a lot of people aren't into choosing joy naturally. Um, I mean, it seems like it would be a natural thing to do, but we get really caught up in how miserable we can be sometimes and how miserable our lives are. Yeah, well, at Live Happy, one of our our main mission really is to get people to understand they can choose to be happier, that it's not something that's pre-programmed for you. It's not a uh, – not, you're not truly a victim of your environment. You can actually do things to increase your overall happiness and your overall life satisfaction, you know, improve your well-being. And these are things that you can do every day, and most people don't know it. Um, they, don't, they don't understand that uh, their mental health is as much in their control as their physical health is to a certain, you know, to a yeah. certain extent. How did you get into this, this topic of live happy? Why did, of all the things you could have focused your life on, why this topic? Working at uh, Success Magazine, uh, the current version of Success, I was the founding editor in chief of that. And Success Magazine is really a personal development magazine with a small business wrapper on it. And while we were working there, um, we came across. While I was working there, I came across this positive psychology movement, which is really a whole bunch of researchers and um, you know psychologists that were out there trying to figure out how to use psychology to make well people thrive give well people the ability to thrive rather than focusing on um, making sick people well, which is what, you know, psychology had really focused on up until that point. And it was really fascinating because I came across all this science and this scientific evidence that showed that you could do things to improve your mental health, your overall well-being, and improve your chance of thriving. Um, and that, to me, really hit a chord because so much of personal development is really just a, a bunch of people who are, you know, show, telling you, I did this and so this happened, or I did that and so this happened. You got to set goals. You got But here was the science backing up why some of that stuff works, and also um, really focusing on living the life you want rather than living the life, you know, success um, 
you know, a life of monetary success or a life of business success, but really living a life where you could sit down and go, you know what, I have a happy life. And, and, and that really struck a chord with me. It's who I am as a person. And um, Live Happy was born out of that. Hmm. I mean, isn't that basic stuff, right? Yet the, the positive psychologist basically had to buck the trend because historically we were always looking at the abnormal psychological behavior instead of what healthy people were doing. What, what are some of the traits that you've found um, and some of the 10 practices for choosing joy? Well, you know, a, a couple of them that I... I mean, there, there's 10, obviously, but yeah. a couple of them that speak really strongly to me are um, gratitude, which is really, we, we overlook, as, as, as human beings, we tend to look at what's next. You know, we reach that goal, and it feels good for about 30 seconds, and then we go, well, what's next? What am I going to do next? Because it wears off. Um, and we're, we're that way about everything in our lives. It's not, we, we, we quit focusing on what we have, and we start focusing on what we don't have. Mm. So for me, the practice of gratitude really is taking the time every day to recognize the good things that you have in life. Um, And it's really important uh, to do that because that's what gives you a sense of satisfaction, right? Yeah. But but it's also what really, to me, gratitude leads you to be a kinder, um, more loving person as well because you're grateful for what you're – you're grateful. Um, So there's simple practices like writing down three things you're grateful for every day, be specific, make them unique. You can't just write down my kids every single day. But if you do that for for a month, your, your mindset changes. You start looking at what you have rather than looking at what you're missing. Mm. And for me, that, that's, that's a really uh, powerful one. Uh, another one that's really powerful for me is uh, mindfulness. And this was something that I really had to work on. It's the act of being present. You know, a lot of people hear mindfulness and they think meditation, and that's certainly part of it. But, um, you know, I had the pleasure of hearing Tom Rath speak last summer. Yeah. And, and, and he's a fantastic guy. Yeah, he's been on the show two or three times. Don't you love him? I do. I do. Yeah. He's a fantastic guy. But he said this thing that really resonated with me. He said, the, perhaps over the next 10 years, the single biggest challenge we may face as individuals is simply paying attention to the person sitting across from us. Oh, so true. <laughs> we are so distracted yeah. by everything. It's nuts. And, you know, a practice of mindfulness isn't just meditation. It's a practice of being present. And you know, I have three small children. I have, I have a job with, with meetings. I have things that I want to do in life, vacations I want to take. And it's really easy to get distracted by everything. But, you know, when I go to my son's hockey game and watch him play hockey, I put my phone away and I watch him play hockey because that's a moment of connection between the two of us. Huh. And being present in that is very different than just being there. Um, and the same is true for a business meeting. You know, put your phone on a table in a business meeting and, and people think that you're distracted. doesn't matter whether it's off or not. Oh, it's <laughs> you know, so true. Just, just the act of being present. So for me, those are two of the practices that I've really started to employ in my own life that have made a difference for me. And it's, it's, it really is um, – it's almost like – and I, I guess this is appropriate because – Technology is driving us into this state of, you know, maybe more efficient, what's next, kind of constantly on mentality. So the idea that mindfulness would, would appear um, now is maybe the antidote to, to some of the tech push. But the other thing that you brought up about gratitude is so powerful because if I'm constantly just in the go mode to get the next thing, I will never find peace. Because I never enjoy 
the 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 win. I never enjoy what I do have. Right. And and here and here's the crazy thing. Most people don't understand it's not just about the way you feel, it's actually about your health. People who are grateful experience better sleep, have better immunity and lower blood pressure mm. than than less less grateful counterparts. If if you know, normalized for everything else. I mean, it's about your health as well as for everything as well as uh you know, how you feel. Yeah, yeah, because we do. We throw it out to be that this is just an emotional benefit. But physiologically, you're going you're gonna to be better, feel healthier, sleep better, have, I mean, joy. How about that? Just, just be able to watch your kid play hockey and not have to, you know, answer. Not about work. Right, exactly. The other, uh, you know, the other thing, um, you know, when we talk about happiness and you talk about health, I mean, the, the evidence is getting to the point where it's overwhelming. Um, you know, they did a study of seven-year-olds that had a positive outlook in yeah. life versus seven-year-olds who didn't. Thirty years later, the seven-year-olds that had a positive attitude at seven experienced less physical, um, tr- you know, physical uh, damage, less illness. They were healthier. You know, wow. a pos- you know, so a positive attitude at the age of seven can dictate how healthy you are at the age of 40. Are we born with that? Or, I mean, I, I know we could probably train it up, teach it up uh, with our children, which is probably we ought to, you know, you know, inoculate them for, from all of the other problems. Do you, are, or are some people just born more grateful? Well, you know, the, the thing of it is happiness has a genetic component. And uh, there's this um, survey that uh, Sonia Lubomirsky did a bunch of years ago that people point at as, as, as statistics, and it's not quite statistics. Uh, when I talked to her, she made that really clear. But generally, 50% of how happy you are is dictated by your genetics. Some of us just have higher set points for happiness or for, you know, for positive attitude, just like many of us have higher set points for athletic ability. You know, I, I, could, I could try and do professional golf for my whole life. I'd never make it. I'm just not that coordinated. Yeah. Darn it. <laughs> but darn it. But I, if I if I practice golf every day, I get better. Right. So if only fifty percent of it is dictated by you know your set point, you can still get better. You can still be happier. You can still have a more positive attitude. You can still have better relationships than you have right now. Because the other fifty percent, um, about ten percent of its environment. Most people think it's more. Most people think that they're victims of their environment. And certainly, if you live in a war zone, you know, if you live in Syria right now, yes. The environment probably has a much stronger um, place, you know, effect on your happiness. But for those of us who live here, only about 10% of its environment, which means the other 40% is made up of choices that we make, things that we choose to do or not do every day. Hmm. That's why I love bringing it up. The more we talk about it, the more, I mean, I guess we're going to end up pushing it into the front of our minds, hopefully do something about it. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Deborah Heiss, uh, the author of um, the book Live Happy, 10 Practices for Choosing Joy, and uh, also the website livehappy.com. We'll come right back and continue this discussion and get into uh, the science behind the wisdom of meaning, which is one of her chapters in the book. Stick with us, folks. Uh, Doing what we can to help you live happy right here on The Matt Townsend Show.
friends to the Matt Townsend Show. On uh, the show with us right now is Deborah Heiss. She is the um, author of the book uh, Live Happy, also the website by the same name, livehappy.com. And uh, the book is Live Happy, 10 Practices for Choosing Joy. Today she's teaching us about um, some of those practices where this is a major movement. And if, if you're sitting there thinking, wow, there's a lot of people talking about mindfulness and gratitude lately. One of the reasons is, um, she mentioned it earlier, there's a, a movement in, in, a, in a form of psychology called positive psychology. And the basic premise is simply when we focus on what people that are healthy are doing, um, it tends to be get more value than when we focus on what people that are unhappy are doing. And uh, the tendency historically of psychology was to focus more on what was not working instead of what was working. And so now after 20 or th- I mean, how many years, 30 plus years of uh, positive psychology research, holy cow, now we're getting a lot of tools and ideas and solutions for what works for healthy people. And uh, Deborah, you've you've put a lot of these together in your book, Live Happy. Um, talk to us. And first of all, welcome back. We appreciate you being here. Thank you. My, my pleasure, really. And talk to us about um, this idea. One of your chapters is about the science behind the wisdom of meaning. Yeah. Meaning, I think, is what we're all after. Uh, feeling that our life matters. I mean, it. you know... <laughs> One of the great uh, one of the great things about meaning is that this is something that everybody understands. They want to feel like they're part of something larger than themselves. Right. They want to feel like their life has meaning. But the reality is that it literally may be a matter of life and death for you if you're older. I know that seems a bit extreme. Wow, scary. But in, in one study of elderly people, those who felt their lives were rich in meaning had a 57 percent less hazard of dying than those that who felt their lives had no meaning. In other words, just having your having the feeling that you have meaning keeps you healthier, keeps you engaged, and and connected to that, really connected to meaning is is the is connection. You know, we have to feel. You know, there are two different chapters in the book. One is on connection. We're talking about connection with other people, and the other is on meaning. But to me, they're so intertwined; they're almost inseparable. Mm. I love that. I mean, there's some research that's come out of BYU that, uh, you know, if you yeah, if you are disconnected, if you feel like you don't have a social group, I mean, it's like smoking, I can't remember the number, like three or four packs of cigarettes a month. Right. Exactly. To your health. Fact, yeah, there's a, there's a longitudinal study that was done for on, on 300 men. So this is a long-term study. And it turns out that um, being connected to other people may be the only thing that matters having meaningful relationships, because mm. even if they had money, health, and good careers, they weren't happy unless they had strong relationships with other people. Wow. Um, it, it really is, if you take that out, if you take out strong connection, you don't, you don't have the happiness. You don't have the reason, the drive for getting up every day. You don't have the why. And if you don't have the why, you don't have the meaning. Um, I think a lot of people think uh, meaning and purpose are the same thing, but a lot of people have purpose. Right. Um, it's you know my purpose is to raise good children. If you're if you're if you're a stay at home mom, well that's your purpose. But it's the meaning you derive from that, the why you feel it's important to do that, that really is what brings you your happiness and brings you your joy. Do you get so if if I have um, if I have something I love doing or I have a purpose of improving relationships for people uh, that I come in contact with. 
you're saying it's it's it might be more important than just knowing what you want to do. It's more important to get down to the actual why behind it. Yes, absolutely. And for for people in you know my job, I have the best job in the world. You know, yeah. in my day, just day looking at this stuff about how to how to make people thrive. I mean, who who and learning about it and being able to apply it to my own life. Who wouldn't want this job? But let's say your job is something else. Maybe your job is um, answering the phone and being a customer service agent. Why you do that job? What's the meaning behind it? What's the you know your purpose is maybe to make money for your family, which is great. But if you can find meaning in what you're doing, you're going to be much happier um, in that job that you spend a third of your week at, or you know, and half your more than half your waking hours at. For example, if you feel that by delivering excellent customer service, you're answering the phone, you're helping people, and you feel good because you're actually helping people, so you've got a meaning there then you're much more likely to enjoy your job. You're much more likely to be happier. Hmm. Or maybe maybe you build something with your hands. And if you can picture the person who purchases that piece of furniture that you build and the joy that they're going to get having it in their home, you feel like you're improving families. It's really figuring out what is the meaning behind how you're spending your time. That is like that, – that could probably help anybody that is maybe stuck in a job where they – they know it's they know it's important what they do. Like I'm thinking of like maybe a medical doctor. They know what it's important and it makes a good income, but they're not they've kind of lost their joy. They've lost their energy. Maybe what they could do is start digging deeper into figuring out what's what is it that makes you feel joy in this job and then get back to that. Yeah, there's a great there's there's the book is filled with not only with the science by the way, it's filled with stories of people who are putting these things into practice. Yeah. And, and there's this uh, great story about a, a gentleman um, named Alistair Mook, who was a folk singer, and he sang in adult bars all the time. And that's what he did, and he, and he was lucky, and he was fortunate to be able to play music and make a living at it. But he had twin daughters, and one of them got cancer. And um, she's fine. She recovered. She mm. was five when she got cancer. But they spent a lot of time in, hotel, uh, in, in hospital rooms. And so what he ended up doing was starting to write music with his daughter. And they wrote music, and they put it on a CD, and then that CD is now distributed to other families who have children with cancer, and they're songs about really dealing with what's going on. There's a great song called When I'm Bald, you know, uh, and it's got a great video with it. But he will tell you that his purpose was to play music, but he didn't find his meaning and why he was doing it until he could put his music to something larger. And now he plays in front of kids more than in front of adults and enjoys it. Still mm. plays music, still, yeah. still does what he was put on earth to do, still has his purpose. But his meaning really is um, attached to helping these families go through what his family went through and, and putting perspective in that and giving those children a voice to their emotions. Yeah. I mean, again, um, it's almost like it appeared, right? They... They were already in it, starting to do it, not maybe fully understanding why, but and and then they can then they can figure out why. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of us find our purpose easier than our meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've been in magazines and and publishing for a long time, and I've enjoyed it. But um, you know, this was the fir- this is the first job I personally had where I feel like okay, this is really me. This is what this is what I'm here to do. It's still publishing, still editing, but now it's doing something that I understand 
how it connects to what the changes I want to make in the world. Right. It's, uh, it also says and almost shows us that creativity is, is a critical part of this. You've got you've to almost be a, a, a creative or just a creator of your own happiness and life instead of just kind of a bystander. Right. Um, we have a chapter on creativity in the book as well. And, you know, the big thing about creativity is most people don't think of themselves as creative. Uh, but we were all kids once, and kids are phenomenally creative, right? I've got a four-year-old. She, she can talk to herself and create worlds all day, so, you know, right. out, of, out of two blocks and, 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 and one toy, you know, whatever is going on. We all have creativity. We forget to exercise it. And it is really important that we exercise our creativity, not only because it boosts our happiness, but because it actually um, enhances our ability to think outside the box. It enhances our ability to really think about why we're doing something, to be creative problem solvers. And, you know, when we are creative, um, our brain releases five neurochemicals that enhance our performance and improve our moods. Mm. I mean, there's, there's, a con- you know, there's a connection that we make when we're creative when we you know we spend too much time being adults there's a, a a point where when we're creative we really do enhance our lives and we forget that because we've got too much that we're supposed to do we forget to take time to do the things that really are different right it's um it, it really is i guess in the end this is your life right this is everybody has a life to live and you can you can do as much with it as, or as little with it as you want, regardless of how much you actually have. Absolutely. I mean, it, and here's the thing. We all tend to be caught up, at least in this country, we all tend to be caught up in trying to have what everybody else tells us is important. One of the great things about happiness is that's not what it's about. It's not It's about finding out what's meaningful to you and right. having that. Um, it's not about, you know, uh, lots of money. It's not about the best job in the world. You know, it, you, you may be perfectly happy to, to, to work at a grocery store and go home and paint or work at a grocery store because you know that it feeds your kids and then you have great picnics on the weekend or you go hiking. What is it that you want out of life that's important um, to you, not to the world at large, because we are we are all different. We are all created differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to assume that we all want the same thing is is uh, is kind of the way the media has painted us. But it's not actually true. No, and it's um, and, and I mean even just looking through the the magazines on the rack, there's so many things that you might see that might be tempting and interesting to you, but also don't necessarily resonate with your inner core, right? With this inner you that so it's this weird balance of getting the real you out into the real world right and, and finding that congruence in your own life because ultimately for me um happiness is is congruence that you're authentic that mm. you are an authentic you and um the rest of us aren't very good at being other people you know, yeah. we, you know we're only good at being ourselves so who who are we authentically that's and so I, true I want to mention a couple things yeah. that I think are really important that are in the book. Okay. Uh, the first one is resilience. Um, and this is really important because this has to do with overcoming failure. Many people don't understand that they can build their resilience, that they can become more resilient to, to negative things. We all have bad things that happen to us. 
Um, but building your resilience or building your grit, it's, it's difficult, but it's something that many people um, don't focus on. Right. Uh, but, it, it, you know, some of the best stories in the book, some of the best stories in life were about people who've overcome. You really can um, build your resilience through strong social connections, building a positive attitude, and helping others, actually helping others overcome things. Um, helps you build your own resilience. Yeah. But, and also remembering that you, you overcame something to get where you are, right? We've all had challenges. Reflecting on where you've been victorious in the past allows you to move forward um, with a more po- optimistic outlook. But the other one that um, I would be really remiss if I overlooked is the power of giving back. And we're not talking about, you know, giving a little bit of money here or doing this. We're actually talking about if we can engage in giving something to someone else, which could be as simple as a compliment. You know, you're standing in line with somebody and you go, hey, those are great shoes. That might be the nicest thing they've heard all day. Right. Or you, buy, or you get a coworker a cup of coffee while you're at the coffee machine. These small acts of kindness actually give us a rush of endorphins, equivalent to what happens when we're the recipient of a gift. It's, it's, it's strange. But we actually get more out of giving. I think everybody's always heard that platitude. It's better to give than to receive. Well, the science shows us it is better to give than it is to receive. There's a better high giving than getting. Absolutely, without a doubt. And it's simple stuff, smiling at strangers. I mean, this is not difficult. This is something, if we can all remember to do this as often as possible during the day, um, we really do kind of create a positive atmosphere. We create positivity around us. Because we're building positive connections with people. Yeah. And we talked about that earlier and how important that is. But even positive connections with someone who gets your coffee in the morning or, or who, you know, uh, whatever that is, uh, or, or, you know, holds the door open for you. Those are all positive connections. And all of that fills up your day with positivity and will enable you to, to, to share that more and live a happier life in general. Mm. Deborah, it's great. Uh... I mean, really, it, again, I think what's now happening is science is able to now validate. A lot of these things we've always believed, but this is more than just platitudes, right? This is health, and this is true happiness. Deborah Heiss is her name. Go to the website, livehappy.com. Also look up the book, Live Happy, 10 Practices for Choosing Joy. Folks, just imagine if you just lived two of the practices, just two, it'll change your life, folks. It's um, This isn't just blowing smoke. Life is filled with uh, opportunities to um, improve your own happiness and find joy. Life is good, um, even if you're not always feeling that. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. Helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, um, there's many a way to create a happy life. Cockroaches may not be one of them. No. But sometimes when there's a see a nasty breakup, there's there's cathartic ways to deal with those emotions. Yeah. And uh, the Bronx Zoo is offering a, a little, little help for oh, those good, situations. Good, good, good. For $10, you can name a cockroach at the zoo after your ex. Excellent. <laughs> Which is sure to kill off any lingering positive associations you may have with that individual. Right. Way to get closure. 
So it says, as of knowing that there's a roach out there with your previous partner's name on it isn't enough, the zoo will also send you a digital certificate to prove that you've named one of the creepy crawlies after someone you dislike. They say hate, but that's kind of a strong Do, does the um, Does the person, does your ex know that you've named? Well, you could send them the notification. I mean, it might be cute to have a picture of it that you could send. The, the New York Zoo originally offered this unique service as a Valentine's Day gift. That's romantic. But the concept gained more popularity after vengeful singles started using the zoo animals naming service to assign their ex's names to cockroaches. Wow. And because they have tens of thousands of them, they're not going to run out of cockroaches. There is no time, so. end. Do they do they actually mark a cockroach for you? Like, I'm not sure. It's, that'd be it, great. It's like the whole, we'll, we'll name a star after yeah, you. Yeah. But Oaks. I mean, a cockroach, if I could have her like a little number put on the back of the cockroach and then my ex could go see the roach that reminds me. Right. And maybe yeah. have like a uh, just a, a list at the side of the cage. Yeah. So as you go up to view into the little area where the cockroaches are. Oh, number four. Oh, there's Brian. Brian's running around. <laughs> <laughs> Look at Brian, the little roach. You know, it's, it's, I guess that is just a sad commentary. On where we've come, that now even the zoos are saying, hey, we could make money it on It says this. the funds raised by the zoo's cockroach naming program will be donated to the Wildlife Conservation Society. That's great. Plus, it's all in good fun. And it beats, you know, stalking them. Yes. Or having just crazy, vengeful feelings. But when you, you know, just need to have a break and go name the cockroach, you've said your piece, and yeah. you move on. But you know how many cockroaches Ben would have named by now. I mean, that's, a, I mean, that's like a roach motel. Yeah. Tens of thousands. It, it truly is. <laughs> ben can't talk. He's trying to think what to say. Wait a second. Ben's just trying to breathe. That was a good burn. A good burn. Thank you very much. Good burn. Do you feel the burn? Ben's got the stomach flu, so um, right now he's a really easy target. Yeah. We aren't even going to take a shot at him. He can't even fight back. It's actually no. sad for us to mention yeah. Ben. Yeah, I hate to even look at him. He's just <laughs> he's breathing through his mouth trying to stay focused, I guess. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Go check us out on iTunes and tune in. Go find our BYU Radio app. Download that so you can get back to all of our podcasts, hundreds of them, uh, for you to archive and, and to go listen to. 